Hey everyone, this is Bradley, Editor-in-Chief of Merchant Fraud Journal. Thanks for checking out the podcast. This episode, we are speaking with Kathy from Fraud.net. We had a great conversation about friendly fraud and the impact that it has on merchants, including why it's so prevalent and how fraudsters can continually attack the same business without that business ever really becoming aware of what's going on for weeks, if not months, if not even longer. She also shared some incredible stories of the ways that fraudsters pull off these types of heists, including how one fraudster was able to steal a $7,000 piece of jewelry by returning a fake. So you don't want to miss this. Great episode. It's very much appreciated. Kathy, thanks so much. And don't forget, you can get all of the latest e-commerce fraud news and tips at merchantfraudjournal.com. And we're live. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Hi, Bradley. How are you? I am very well, thank you. So everyone should know that this is the second time we're doing this podcast. I had so much fun talking to Kathy. I just thought we'd do it again. It definitely wasn't because of of fritzy internet connections, because we're very high tech people, <laughs> and very high tech people would not have those those issues. So. Absolutely not. <laughs> So, Kathy, I'll get I like to get the the good stuff out of the way here first. Why don't you tell us where you're from, who you represent, give your give give everyone a little bit about yourself and then we'll jump right in. Well, that is uh, some good stuff. I'm uh, Kathy Ross and I'm a co-founder and president of fraud.net. Um we're located here in New York but have offices across the globe, uh Seattle, Washington, Frankfurt, London and Australia. Um, and we focus primarily in fraud detection and prevention. Amazing. So like I said, let's just jump right in. And why don't you let me know, uh, tell us one of your craziest fraud stories. Well, that's a great place to start, but I'd like to start actually first by giving you a compliment uh, and telling you that when I got the invitation to your show, I was like, you know, this is such an interesting way of looking at it in terms of let's catch a fraudster and a different way of looking at fraud because I spend all of my time looking and talking about big data and machine learning. And I really think though, it's these really, it's these individual stories that are so interesting. And it's really the problem that we're using all of this technology to try to solve problems for. Uh, and I really like the fact that your show brings it back to a more human element. Uh, so congratulations on, on that. And I think that you're, you're really adding value to the system. Thank you. No, we really appreciate that. That's what we try to do. We're a community-focused publication, and we try to bring everybody together, even though obviously everybody's in competition with each other, but it is still a community of people. And so we, we try to bring that human touch. So thank you. I, I appreciate that a lot. It means a lot. So I, I know that we started with the story, but uh, one of the things that you, I was asked to come in and talk about really was uh, friendly fraud. And I just want to start with just kind of an overview of what that is, and For then sure. that'll help explain part of the story. Um, and essentially what friendly fraud, I guess industry people call it first party fraud, um, it's when a legitimate customer, a real person that passes uh, you know, all of the ID screens, they have a valid email and address, uh, but they enter into a transaction 
with online without the intent of ever paying for it. So they usually say, oh, I'm missing a part. It was damaged. I need a refund. I need uh, a charge back. I didn't receive it. But at the end of the day, they're going to keep the product without paying for it. And so that essentially is friendly fraud. And I wanted to give you, I have a story for you. Yeah, Brad. let's hear it. Okay. And so um, there is, I want to call it a guy from Miami. And we're going to call him Andy. We'll call him Andy from Miami. Okay. Uh, and uh, he comes into one of, you know, a very large client of ours online stores. And he purchases a very, very expensive purse. First of all, we'll, we'll assume for his wife, but he's purchasing a, a very expensive purse. Um, he calls 15 days later into their customer service and he wants to return the purse. And of course, they want a frictionless experience with him. He's a repeat customer. All of his IDs checked out. Everything looks good. So they approve the return, basically no questions asked. When the purse arrives back at the warehouse, um, it comes back. Everything looks pretty good except for there was one woman in the returns department that looks at it and goes, you know, something looks a little bit off. I'm not really sure. And it turns out that uh, the purse turns out to be a very, very, very good fake. Wow. Apparently those exist. Um, and so it throws up all kinds of flags in the system. So she flags it in the system. It goes back to the, uh, you know, the, Fraud analyst department. Uh, this guy had done three transactions over the last six months, but using our system, they were able to see, you know what? Not a single transaction was clean. Like it was always, there were smaller transactions, but there was always, you know, if it's a $15 charge, it was, you know, it wasn't big, you know, chargebacks, but none of the, the transactions were clean. And then this was the big one. And so it escalated it even more. And so a more complete fraud analysis was done and we do something that's called um, a linked entity analysis. Okay. And what turned out what we thought or what they thought was just, well, you know, this is a simple case of friendly fraud. You know, it's not great. It was a $3,000 purse. Uh, but with this full analysis and this linked entity analysis, it turns out that this guy was attached to a much larger fraud ring. I mean, it really was, it's organized fraud. Um, and the way that we ended up catching him or linking him to, to this uh, larger entity was his email address. And it wasn't even the exact email address. Let's say, and this is just hypothetical, it was Andy737 at Gmail. Uh, but he had a very similar email address. So it was uh, Andy738 at Gmail. And so we were able to connect him to this much larger fraud ring and that we were then able to see that that larger fraud ring actually expanded to many of the merchants on our network. And that was a way for us to shut the whole thing down. But something that looked so simple and so genuine, like Friendly Fraud does, turned out to be a much larger, more complicated fraud situation. So my question here is, what is the motivation for using this attack vector to peddle stolen goods? Because I would think that if you're that good at making a forgery, you would probably be able to just sell them, possibly at an even higher markup and easier to regular people who might not know exactly what they're looking for. Is it is the thinking that 
because you're dealing with merchants, they just don't have the time to check each and everything because this is an expert. You're bringing this back to a company that sells these legitimate products and passing off a fake. So I would think that's a much higher hurdle to clear when you're when you're trying to offload this kind of stolen merchandise than just going to your average consumer who's purchasing this kind of stuff who maybe has an eye for it but but not the way that you would expect someone who really sells the merchandise to have and sell it to them plus i would think that you could get a lot more of those people every time you hit someone uh, that's a business like this you can only do that one time so then you have to find other merchants that are selling this type of merchandise to perpetrate the scam. But if you were doing it with just individuals, you would be able to do it a lot faster. So I'm curious why target the businesses at all. Well, I mean, I think that that is true of larger fraud rings to some extent. And I, and I will tell you, there are other stories where it's done on the wholesale side as well, where someone purchased, you know, 5,000 uh, polo shirts and then return fake. So it can be done on a larger scale wow. and they do move from merchant to merchant to merchant. So if they get caught at one merchant, they do move on to other merchants. So if I can hit, you know, 20 merchants and take them for, you know, sometimes even with jewelry, $10,000, $20,000 a hit, it does become profitable for me to do that. So how does how does something like that happen? I'm 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 so curious when you're talking this wholesaling angle. How does a wholesale? What is going on on the merchants end that they are not detecting these things? If you're shipping somebody five thousand polo shirts or some kind of high end expensive jewelry, you must be aware of this. How how do these people get away with returning fakes? How how is someone not paying attention? Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh! It's because, and especially at larger companies, um, their data is de-siloed and their information is de-siloed. So a lot of times um, you will get, yeah, they have a fraud detection. They'll check the ID. And this is why traditional fraud detection companies don't work. They'll check the ID. Let's say they're selling a $10,000 ring. Um, all, everything checks out. Everything actually looks pretty good. And sometimes that might be synthetic identity, but everything looks pretty good. Um, but the person in the returns department is not, they're not looking for fake stuff coming back. They're just checking boxes and saying, yeah, we got it. Right. And so they may even restock it. So, I mean, it's the silo of information, the silo, the siloing of um, departments with friendly fraud, it's not even the big rings. I gave you that as an example. Really, with friendly fraud, it's a lot of individuals that just don't have the intention of uh, really paying for the transaction. So, I mean, it could be something as simple as uh, somebody buying so something on, let's say, Amazon, and then saying, well, I never got the package, and Amazon refunds some of the money. And oddly enough, as we go into, you know, we've done a lot of research on this. Uh, we looked at, at the 2008 kind of recession, and we've also looked at this COVID time. Um, and what we find is, is that when there are tougher economic times, individuals will start to commit more and more friendly fraud. Over this last, I think in the last, uh, in the first four months of kind of post-COVID, 
announcement, we saw a 40% increase in fraud. And so these things are also cyclical with, um, with the economy and it could just be individuals doing it. But at the end of the day, everyone seems to focus on um, chargebacks, but we believe that friendly fraud is actually twice as big. Uh, and a lot of times it's individuals. So I, I, I have to go back to the siloed, siloed departmental structure. It seems absolutely insane to me that you would have companies that are selling this type of high-end merchandise and they don't have somebody that's actually verifying that what they're getting back is the actual thing. I, I, I find that just absolutely shocking. And my question would be, what hope can these companies have if they can't even be trusted to protect themselves by having a verified expert looking to see if a $2,000 handbag is actually a $2,000 handbag that's coming back to them in a box from USPS or whatever. H how can these people possibly be trusted to, to defend <laughs> against sophisticated? I, I mean, maybe that's mean if anybody in, in that industry is listening and wants to uh, call me out on a future podcast, please do. But it seems to me in, inconceivable that somebody, yeah. uh, an organization that can't even do that type of basic check for what they're getting back could be trusted to, to, to protect against any kind of fraud. Like, what, what do you do to help these people? Well, I'm going to tell you that actually the saddest case I saw was a small jeweler uh, that somebody did that and they sent something back fake and it was still the owner and they still didn't catch it. So, wow. you know, and that was like a 7,000, I think it was a $7,000 piece of jewelry. But, you know, what really has to happen we believe, and it's one of the ways that FraudNet looks at this, is that you have to look at the user behavior over multiple vendors over a longer time period. Um, and what you'll often see is that once somebody figures out that they can do this, is that they do it over and over and over again. So you'll see, you know, when we looked at our friendly fraud database and we did this retrospective over the last, I think, two years, is that the top 10 friendly fraudsters never had a single clean transaction over the last 12 months. Wow. So we look at a 12 month period and they charge back, refund, 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 charge back. And so it just went on and on and these, they do it over and over again. And I don't we wonder think why people do this. And we wonder I'm why sorry? people do this. It's obviously pretty easy. I feel like I'm in the wrong business yeah. at this point. Like, well, like, yeah. Like, and the other thing that I think that merchants can do, and one of the things that we also look at, look at is taking a more holistic viewpoint of their fraud prevention systems. And that means, you know, everybody's like, you know, let's track to the device and we're going to see if it's the right ID. But they're not tracking a lot of times the post-transaction things that don't end up as chargebacks. So as a user, you know, as a purchaser, if I call up and complain, most and you know high-end vendors let's i mean vendors that really focus on you know customer service so you know they're very focused on this frictionless customer experience they will if i complain about anything they'll give me a refund on the spot right they'll they'll just you know i'll say hey i didn't like it or you know whatever they give me a refund or they give me a new product on the spot but they're not really tracking you know what's happening in their refund and returns department and we believe that two thirds of the fraud that's coming in are in those departments. Right. And so they're not just taking that next step to say, 
well, you know what? This customer has too many refunds or too many returns. And what, like, this is an interesting statistic actually, is that if somebody uh, commits fraud with a chargeback, the, the vendor will, uh, the merchant will generally cut them off 85% of the time and not allow them to conduct business in their store for that second transaction. With friendly fraud, they only cut off or blacklist customers 15% of the time, even though they know it's fraud. So it's been identified as fraud by the, the, let's say a refund or in the customer service department. They only cut them off 15% of the time. And then that user goes on to conduct another nine transactions with them before they actually get cut off. That's absolutely unbelievable. I, I th- I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in my experience, the reason for this is because when people get chargebacks, it feels like they're getting stolen from. But when yeah. they get a one of these fake refunds, it doesn't seem to have the same the same visceral reaction that it that it it, it really makes people feel like no, this can't happen again. And I, I'm curious in your experience why there's that psychological disconnect when you're talking with people and you're saying to them, "This person has done this nine." times this is now the 10th time that this has happened do they feel embarrassed do they feel ashamed do they feel stupid do they feel well whatever i don't know are they indifferent like what 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 are these conversations like when you have this type of of thing happen with a a customer or client and you point it out to them um i think that thus far like it historically they have just not tracked it. I don't think that they thought about it as necessarily being fraud until you point it out. So I, you know, even one customer that we went in, we pointed out, okay, here, you know, here is somebody that's ripped you off nine times. And I'm going to say it's a travel company. They buy the uh, ticket and they buy the insurance, but they charge back that insurance nine times out of the 10 times that they've landed safely in their destination. So clearly there is a problem, but I really think that it's this whole concept of, you know, we spent tens and hundreds of millions of dollars attracting these customers. We need to keep our revenues growing. We don't want to reject them. We we want this frictionless event um, that they almost bury their heads in the sand and they don't want to track it. Uh, necessarily track it right because it, it's going to depress their revenues if they say no but the offsetting is is that their profits will go up so if it comes it's a it's a very messy situation in terms of what has historically been done and what they're used to doing versus where they really need to go in order to stop it that's now that being yeah. said yeah that's I I, I want to ask you I want to follow up on this because that's super interesting I'd never really thought about that before and I'm always I'm a lover of going down the black hole of human intentions, <laughs> so it sounds like what you're saying to me is that what's actually going on here a little bit at least is that people are taking a short term view of what looks good for them leadership is saying well we could probably get a handle on this but. I can increase my revenues. These are these are revenues that are coming in. And then on the back end, I can just say to shareholders or to highest management, well, that's just fraud. And and the the leadership won't make that connection to say, so your revenues were actually 15% lower 
because you lost 15% of it to chargebacks or friendly fraud. And so you're, you're almost getting a disconnect in the incentives between what maybe a, a CMO or, or a head of sales is looking at in terms of discussing the big picture with their organization. That, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I what I would say is that there are two things that I, I would a little bit change with that is I think that they view it more as a cost of doing business. And I think that they don't necessarily want or do classify it as fraud. They'll classify it as returns or refunds, right? And so it's in there. We know it's a problem. And what is, I think, interesting is that when you start to look at economic downturns and this type of behavior increases so dramatically that you do start start to see companies that are willing to start to address it. I mean, if you kind of look at what's been going on is that you can kind of in the market is that you'll see a lot more analysis now coming out, a lot more reports coming out about friendly fraud, but there really hasn't been any solutions that have really come out. Um, for them to truly address the problem. And I got to tell you, it's a growing problem. And especially now during COVID and people are, you know, the fraud rates are going up and a lot of it, a lot of it is friendly fraud. Wow. So, so besides the fact that you're a better human being than me and much less cynical than I am, (laughs) um, what, what, what do you think we can do as a community in terms of the awareness that people have of this problem? So I'll, I'll, I'll take your, uh, your glass half full view and say that this is just something that people don't really think of properly because they're not, fr- they're not spending their entire day thinking about fraud and how to prevent fraud. So they just look at it and say, well, this is just lost revenue, like a lost sale. And it's, it's not really something that I'm going to concern myself with too much, but obviously as it becomes a larger and larger problem and it becomes more and more sophisticated, there, there has to be something that changes. People have to be taking this into account when they're constructing their sales and marketing and, and all these budgets and realizing that a lot of it is getting wasted in, in fraudulent transactions. How do, we, how do we make people become more aware of that in their organizations? I think it's by really doing the analysis and understanding what it is. And like I said, I think that when you're in tightening, especially in something like maybe e-commerce, when you're in tightening markets, I think that there is more of a desire to rationalize, right? And to really seek these things out because these companies are not only losing advertising dollars, often they lose the product, right? I just didn't get it. They reship the product. Right. I mean, it is not 100 percent. It's refunds, but a lot of times it's reshipments. It's return. I think that they're starting to focus on this and we're seeing it in the industry come up more and more where people are looking for um, friendly fraud solutions. And my personal belief is that it really can be solved two ways. Um, one is, is that you have to have a wider view across a broader network other than just operating inside of your own system. But one, first take a look at your internal system and see if, you know, what your, your customers' behaviors are. They've had, you know, every transaction they've done in the last three months has not ended well um, or had a positive income. You really need to think about it. But they really should start looking across a, a wider 
network like a fraud.net or even you know going to you know we talked about this before you know the processors the processors um they have some idea as to what user behavior is and user outcomes are right so when when you're looking into these kinds of things i think the hardest thing for people to get their their heads around is that it seems invisible and maybe that's the best way to put it is that a chargeback feels like like theft i know i, I said that before i, I really think speaking yeah, with merchants it because it, 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 it is theft but it, it feels like theft this doesn't and because it's wrapped up in obviously legitimate returns and people getting things and legitimately they're busted or they're not what they asked for and so they send them back and they have no ill intentions at all they're just trying to get what they legitimately paid for i think because all this gets wrapped up into one kind of ball of like you were saying returns of goo yeah it, <laughs> it, it becomes really difficult for people to conceptualize and compartmentalize what's actually what's actually going on so I'm I'm curious if if that's what you're seeing if the movement is coming more from a, a data driven kind of bottom line that people are saying oh hey on my spreadsheet this is this is causing damage or if you're seeing more that people are kind of becoming aware of this problem emotionally and intellectually that this is theft as well. Yeah, Bradley, I actually think it's both. Okay. I mean, I think it's both. I think that um, they're becoming more aware and then they're starting to also see, you know, wow, I spent, you know, $10 to get this customer. We got to start de-siloing some of this data and really looking and understanding who our customers are and what they're doing. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think it's both because we are definitely seeing it, a, you know, a, a, a much more... Um, specific interest in trying to address friendly fraud by some of the largest companies in the United States at this point okay. or globally. Right. And it wasn't something that was a big topic two years ago. Right. No, I, I, I definitely agree that we've seen more and more people discussing it. Um, what is, what is the angle that you take when you're, when you're talking pe to people about this, about how they can protect themselves? Because obviously now, as everything is faster and customer experience and Amazon delivers yeah. things before you even order them now, I think <laughs> like before you even know it, that you want to order it, it appears at your door. So I, I know uh, there's a, there's a huge emphasis on speed and on differentiation through customer experiences, because a lot of times people can just click off to another website and get the same widget from wherever they are. So really the only yeah. thing that people have left to, to capture attention is either their brand or their customer experience. So, yeah. so it's, it's interesting to me. Um, I don't know where you want to go with that, but, but I, I'm, I'm interested how you talk to people about this, uh, this dichotomy or this tension that exists between preventing the friendly fraud, but not ruining your customer experience? Well, I, I think that the first stage, uh, which is, is that there is a greater awareness, which is, makes it a lot easier to talk about, um, is that there is a growing awareness that it is a problem. Um, and so that makes it easier to approach them. And then really the second step is, and it sounds so simple, it's just, analyzing their own internal data and bringing up the people that have negative outcomes over and over again that is not specific to chargebacks. 
right? And so you got to look at everything. You have to look at everything and the behavior of individuals post-transaction. And so that's the first part. And they go, oh my gosh, I, you know, I have, you know, this one analysis that we recently did. Oh my gosh, my top 10 guys have stolen X amount of dollars from me. That is not good. And they've never had a good, a good transaction. I have, but they weren't carjacked, right? Never a good transaction, never a clean transaction. And then the next step beyond that, I think, is to get a, and to show that there is a wider view that once somebody figures out that they can do it on, and I'm just picking names, gap.com, then they know that they can also do it on Victoria's Secret and, you know, at the airline, that they understand that there is a process that, I, hey, I can do this for free. And so what you see is, is that these individuals move from store to store to store. Eventually they do get caught, right? We said by the night transaction, they may be, you know, kind of cut off from using that vendor again, but it takes to the ninth transaction instead of the second, the chargeback. Right. Ninth transaction. Yeah. Hey, I can yeah. just move to a different store. And so unless you have a wider network that actually tracks all of these post-transaction events, I think that it, it's it's really hard. It's hard. It's a, it, it is a, it's a tough uh, problem to tackle, but I believe that that's the way that you do it. Right. It's just more awareness for people and giving them better strategies to handle it. Because it, it does seem interesting to me that you could have nine failed transactions and somehow not be aware of it. I, I still find But is, there, is a refund a failed transaction? Right. You know, I mean, I think that that was the, uh, that's where the, the mindset switchover is happening. Wow. So before we go, I want to ask you. So you you said you this this uh, one fraudster mailed back a seven thousand dollar piece of jewelry that was fake, um, or mailed back a copy of a seven thousand uh, yeah. dollar piece of jewelry. I'm interested if you have any other crazy story to leave us with about <laughs> some kind of ridiculous. I mean, we've heard such things on this podcast already about breaking into phone boxes, having entire FedEx uniforms made up. I'm, I'm, oh my god! It's unbelievable stuff. So, what is what is the craziest instance of this type of fraud that you've ever come across, either for dollar value or for sheer brazenness? Well, I wouldn't even go back to the jewelry one in the sense that this is what was interesting. Uh, about that one. They did not mail it back in. And this is what we're finding out about a lot of friendly process is that they will contact customer service. They will walk into the store. This person actually walked into the store and returned it. Wow. Yeah. So it's it wasn't even uh, that I, I thought was very brazen. Like it, it's not always mail. It, you know, these people, they call customer service. They seem legitimate. They'll talk on the phone. It's not like they're really hiding. And it's because the ID is not the issue. It's the intent. Right. Wow. Well, I I can't, can't imagine having the nerves to walk into a place and try to pass off a fake piece of $7,000 jewelry. But I guess, I guess that's why I'm running a podcast and not a fraud ring. I don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> good for you. <laughs> good for me. Well, I know. I, well, everybody knows me now, so I don't think it would it would it wouldn't work. All the all all the all the crime fighters know who I am. I can't hide from the Justice League of Fraud Prevention anymore. So you know. <laughs> well, Kathy, I really I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing these stories. And it's it's like I said, incredible to hear these these. Uh, these stories and the things that people do. And thank you so much for, for trying to protect honest and hardworking merchants. Um, and, and oh, really, Bradley, thank you. Yeah, we I really, really I really like the premise of this show. I, I just think it's a great idea. Thank you so much. So we will, we'll hopefully have you again sometime in the future. We'll get you on again. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Sounds great. Well, we really appreciate it. And, Thanks. and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Okay. All right.